You're listening to TGP Extra. lovely city of Canterbury and um, I'm being joined by uh, John Hipsley. What is it you actually do? Well I'm a ghost hunter but uh, not too much of a practical ghost hunter, more of uh, helping people understand about the paranormal in their daily lives. I used to work with the Church of England doing lay exorcisms but uh, that was actually a bit tedious because there were so many exorcisms around here where people are built on graveyards that uh, I sort of gave that up and did just did uh, blessing processes, 50 quid cash, you know, not guaranteed. And then I started one of these ghost tours of Canterbury every Friday and Saturday night at 8pm, meeting down at Albury's Wine Bar in St Margaret Street. Which is where we are at the moment, just outside. Yeah. How long have you been running these tours? I started in 1991, and uh, it was basically because uh, I was working for another company who were doing ghost tours, but they were very flowery and wordy, like sort of... Uh, Poish, if you imagine. <laughs> Indulge me if you would in the time of hobgoblins. Which is alright, but the sort of people that came on the tours really weren't that interested in Poe and uh, the depressing stuff. So I mean, it was an hour and a half long and most people were suicidal by the end. Just t- take me away, kill me now. And uh, we also the route was different to one I do now. We used to end in a pub, which sounded okay, and we had a midpoint break in a pub, but we tend to lose half the group at the pub. So as you would, yeah. So I changed the route and rewrote it, and then they put a, a, um, an injunction in against me. My previous employers to stop me trading, so I had to employ people to do the tour, which cost me a fortune. They were hoping I was going to close down and give up, but I'm never a quitter. That's why I smoked for so long. And um, and so basically. It's been running from 1991 till the present day, so it's about 23 years. And you've grown a lot of interest in uh, from different parties and things as well, because you, you sometimes work with um, television crews and, and things. Don't you? Yeah, I tend to sort of do cross fertilisation. So if a TV crew's coming to Canterbury to talk about tourism, I'll do a piece of camera about my business or how tourism has affected different ways. I'm also uh, running a, a small business forum in Canterbury called uh, Talking Traders, which helps communicate little businesses like mine with the big boys. Um, and I also work with schools and colleges and universities. So if you've, for example, got a language school who want to learn a bit of English, I do a special tour for them. It's, it's ghosts, supernatural, but it's also about English language and history. So it's uh, not just ghosts. Because a couple of people get switched off by ghosts. You know, oh, it's too depressing. You know, I want to go home now. Well, no, because, I mean, it's all part and parcel of history and things. It's, if, if a place is old enough, there's a chance that it's going to be haunted. Oh, yeah, well, it's, um, <laughs> this street we're in, Samara, is one of the most haunted in Canterbury. Um, properties behind you, which are sort of dual-gabled, jutted frontage medieval properties. That one particularly has been exercised five times in 400 years. Wow. Suggesting possibly that exorcism only works the person who pays for it. <laughs> and they move on or die, and the church comes back and says, I think you need an exorcism. Yes. <laughs> so... Without giving too much away, what are we kind of expecting this evening? Well, it's a gentle stroll through the streets and the gloaming. Uh, the city really doesn't come alive, luckily, until about 9.30. So we have the city to ourselves between 8 and 9.30. And uh, we can 
Look at various locations I've looked at, investigated uh, on a paranormal level from the 90s to the present day. We don't take people inside buildings anymore because of the health and safety aspect. But we do take them to the buildings that you know I'd experienced in. So I describe what I'd experienced inside in very graphic ways. And we also talk about, uh, rather than just saying this place is haunted, I go through the history of why it's haunted and the story that made the thing haunting. Suicide, murder, what I mean, buried alive, that sort of stuff, you know, basic stuff. You can do so much with the imagination. Yeah, yeah, well, but these are all based on fact rather than sort of fictional stuff. Yeah. And as a result, of course, it doesn't really tug at the heartstrings on these sad things that happen in the city. So uh, I try to make it uh, as fun for kids as well, because obviously, you know, you've got kids and families, and all they're too scary, and by the same time, you can too boring for the adults. So That's right. Depending on who the group is, and you know, get them all involved. There's a bit of audience participation, burning witches, etc., sort of thing. It's what we all love to do at the weekends, especially after a hard day at the Waffies. Uh, I don't work for anybody except myself now. I used to work for HM Revenue and Customs, but they made me redundant about four years ago, so I decided to do this full-time, which is which is nice. They do say if you enjoy your job, you never really work again, and as a result, I haven't really worked in the last five years. <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's a very relaxed job, and um, I, I work with some great people. I mean, every tour is different, that's the whole thing, because it depends on the reaction of the, the group. It's not especially a comedy tour, but it's quite fun. You know, not, nobody walks away depressed and hope to get a round of applause. There's always one or two that, you know, can't be happy with whatever they get. So, Brilliant. You know, good and bad and all. Great. So we're in for a very enjoyable evening then? I hope so, as long as somebody else turns up. <laughs> Just you and me, I'm quite happy. But, uh, I'm sure my bank manager will be. That's true. Right. So let's see where the evening takes us. Crichton, what are you doing, man? Oh, sir, I'm listening to the Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. Now, we're going to take you on a gentle stroll around the streets. There's no running unless it goes horribly wrong. <laughs> Catch me up. And uh, as we travel around, we'll be uh, probably not interrupted by that many people. It looks really quiet for the first time in ages. Uh, the, the city has quite a lot of sort of other local residents, 49,000 students that come back around this time of year. And we've got freshers and we've got hedonism weekends coming up. Looking forward to that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Flash your residents going, yeah, yeah 16 gigabombs. Uh, and... Uh, well, when that happens, of course, I tend to be not on the night time on, hopefully. Mm. Uh, but even Christchurch University have a, a special bash. Every, you know, there's four universities here, so each one of them have their own bash. Getting the freshers to know all the pubs. So luckily it's not tonight, so it'll be bright side. And uh, if we are interrupted by locals, just shout something like uh, bananas or something. And they tend to go, hey? <laughs> I mean, I've sort of over the years people's attitude to ghosts has changed and when they first started these tours in 91 uh, if you said you saw you know a ghost people went ooh I don't know what I told you a nice, leather, nice padded cell a nice comfy comfy jacket for you waiting but now of course if you say you see ghosts all the time people say well tell me all about it uh, it's all much more open I think thanks to Britain's most haunted and some of these other things uh, and I say when well, I saw my first one down at Goudhurst uh, that was uh, didn't know it was a ghost so didn't you know, didn't know what to expect Sometimes ghosts appear in houses where you've had uh, uh, structural changes. So if you rip the staircase out and put a new spiral staircase in or a slide, as some chap did down in uh, Hawkehurst a couple of years ago, because uh, he, he really fancied coming downstairs in a slide. I mean, he's rich enough, he can do what he liked, you know, in an elevator and a slide. Why so, not? <laughs> well, yeah, it's a Tudor house. That's what you need in a Tudor house. He, t- he took out the chimney stack and replaced it with a you know, sort of a wood boiler or wood burner and put a, a lift in where the chimney stack was and uh, took all the medieval staircases out and uh, put a slide in. So, there we 
he was. Happy little bunny. But uh, the resident spirit wasn't too happy about his structural changes. I don't think the local council were too happy about it either because uh, it actually basically ruined a listed building when he had to take it all out and put it all back in again. So it cost him, I think, about seven million it cost him to put it back together again. Well, I suppose you could say couldn't have to a nicer bloke. But um, the resident spirit uh, was very against these changes and started to make uh, life difficult for him. And I was consulting with the Church of England at that time. He was still customer, so still did uh, part-time work with the church. And we went down there to try and sort his poltergeist activity out. It, we didn't achieve anything because it was quite clear the poltergeist was just angry about, you know, the, the, the lift <laughs> didn't help. And uh, I don't think it was, it was one of these pneumatic lifts, you know, like sort of hydraulic ram, mm. uh, rather than actually proper chain at the top. So it was it was a silent lift. So I'm sure any ghost would say, well, this is unusual. <laughs> We've seen the lifts before. This is not right. This is bedevilment. Um, and uh, so we've got sort of some problems there. Now, on the route itself, we're, we're, we're basically taking a route through the oldest part of the city. And uh, the street we're on now is one of the most haunted in the city. So if we do see something tonight, you'll feel a really cold feeling. So let's see how we go. Um, we're going to a first location just over there. And, uh, head off on our tour. Hopefully we can get around more peace. I'll hold the sails at the end. This was once a public house called the Crown Inn. It owned for business in 1600. and was trading quite happily until the Civil War broke out and Oliver Cromwell came here and threatened to blow it up with a cannon. He had something about the Crown, his name was very weird, I think, Cambridge lads. And uh, when they changed the name, they changed it in honour of his army to the New Model Tavern. Mm-hmm. And it stayed the model tavern until 1973. By that time, nobody knew why it was called the model tavern. It wasn't particularly model. It was a particularly nice tavern. Uh, it stopped being a pub in 1973 because uh, a previous landlord and landlady disappeared without trace, leaving a trail of debt. Wouldn't happen now. It's the 1970s. <laughs> um, and when the new landlord was sent for by Fremlin's Brewery, he came in with a dog, because uh, often in those days he used to carry a sort of pub dog, and the dog disappeared immediately into the place and had a rummage around. He came back a few moments later with a silver engagement ring in his mouth, oh. to which the landlord said, well, I love you, but I can't marry you. <laughs> uh, then he asked the dog, where did you get the ring? And the dog being English said, oh, it's in the cellar. And, uh, <laughs> so he followed the dog to the cellar. <laughs> Just beneath the window here, there's a Roman cellar, uh, about eight metres below the window, and in the earthen floor there, he found a human finger protruding from the earth with, mm. with the flesh on it and a sort of a ring shape. Decided not to investigate himself. He called the police. They exhumed the body of the mother and child of the previous landlord and yeah. uh, his son. Been buried alive about a week before. The bodies in uh, post-mortem showed that they'd uh, in, well, aspirated earth. So they were alive when they were buried. And uh, as a result, it stopped being a pub. But it became an off-license, so it was still good spirits. And... Uh, I investigated here around that time uh, because there was poltergeist activity. Uh, even now, you see the sort of jewellery stuff in the window. Uh, not that stuff moves, but the stuff behind it in the, in the racks often moves of its own accord and stop taking the lights, not those lights around the window, obviously, but uh, <laughs> the lights uh, inside during the daytime switch on and off themselves and radios upstairs and down often play themselves off. That's poltergeist activity. They're necessarily throwing stuff around cannonballs or stuff, but uh, <laughs> just little things. They're said to be mischievous little spirits. Uh, this may well be the little child. And uh, the mother's been seen in the upstairs rooms as well. Interesting enough that the, the building had a bit of a macabre history in its earlier incarnations. In 1910, the husband and wife that lived here then had a tempestuous relationship. The husband treated his wife herself with the rule of thumb. 
Have you ever run a farm? No. Oh, yeah, that's the... You know, stick can be bigger than a thumb. Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. Wide. Cheery old English law. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was enacted in 1430, the marriage act, uh, that if you're married to a girl, you can only beat her with a stick that's no wider than your thumb. Which is still pretty big. It's still pretty big. Well, it depends how big your thumb is, really, isn't it? I mean, you've got a really big, fat thumb. You've got a good cudgel on the end of it. Yeah. If you put a claw hammer on the end, it was still covered. Yeah. Uh, as long as you didn't beat her face, that's fine. Back of the legs, back of the back, uh, but nothing in the face. And... Uh, the husband here beat his wife most nights. He was he wasn't a drunk, but he he ran the pub and uh, with a rod of iron, you could say. Uh, she appealed to the magistrates in 1910 for a divorce from her husband, but she was refused under the rule of thumb because men had the upper hand, literally in that case. And uh, she became suicidal. She borrowed at one of the butcher shops. Uh, crochets, the S-shaped tenderizing that we used to have in butcher shops. Do you remember when, be, probably before your time, but meat used to be hung yep. to give it flavour. Now you have to get M&S food for that. <laughs> Just food, it's M&S food. Now she borrowed the butcher's hook and accessed the roof panel up here. See where the, the crown of the roof is up here at the tip of the... She hacked it in one of the crossmember beams, taking a length of rope from the cellars, tying one end to the top of the banister rail, hooked it over the hook and tied it around a circuit and a noose around her neck to swing down to the staircase to hang herself, but she didn't do a structural survey. Because, uh, oh, no. Had she done so, she'd have noticed the beam was rotten with the rubber, and when she jumped, it broke the main beam, which actually pulled the roof timbers on top of it. Could have killed her. Luckily, the husband <laughs> came up, beat the living daylights out of her. And uh, then she was arrested that night by the police, because unfortunately, suicide was until 1990 illegal Crime. under Crown Law, because you're taking your life before God. So, yeah, so what Canada, that was that was 1910. Yeah, but until 19. Until 1990. Yeah. Is that recent? Yeah. yeah. Is that recent? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. we like we, we understand mental health, don't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, so yeah. If, you, if you're trying to commit suicide, we should be arrested. So she was sent to prison. Here. She was sent to prison for 11 years. But they got away from the husband, I suppose. So. Uh, yeah, but after six right. years, they commuted the sentence to a new institution called Augustine's near Canterbury. It's a uh, mental hospital, we call it now or then. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was treated with. Uh, uh, something called Faraday treatment then, which is now called electroconvulsive therapy. Eleven hours a day, she was locked into a chair and had the mains run through. She had an hour off for lunch and twelve hours sleep, so probably no hardship. But after five years, she was cured. Well, they claimed she was cured. She was very relaxed, but not very good at ironing. Yeah. And uh, give her an iron. She go, woof, 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 very scary. And never, never going near a cat. So very odd with cats. Cats would go meow, and uh, before they got to her, uh, they took a photograph of her to show how relaxed she was. Because her photographs in the archive uh, as a memorial to those women who were treated in such a strange way. Because in those days you could be locked in prison for having a child out of wedlock, even the 1960s. They might be away with that. This is fair enough. I mean, uh, no single mothers in England. <laughs> Just locked away until some mental institution. Babies taken away. You need Catholic nuns doing their best to uh, look after babies by beating themselves their feet so they wouldn't run away. Oh, we love England. Now, uh, when she returned, she was returned to the custody of her husband because he was the safest person to have. That's nice. So, been away for 11 years, pretty chilled. Uh, and then the husband starts beating her up again. The son, because she had a little son, who was only one years old when she was taken into, into prison, uh, was being looked after by the father and a nanny, so it was costing him money. He also turns out that he had to pay for a treatment in hospital. Well, so it's sort of payment, really, it's all. Uh, yeah, I know. Bless him. Uh, unfortunately, he started beating her again soon after she returned because basically he didn't have a punch bag. I think he used to beat the child as well, but uh, not to such a great extent. So the child was probably about uh, 11 or 12 when he saw his mother one night at the top of the stairwell up here uh, with a rope around her neck 
ready to jump again, this time on the stairwell. She was standing with her hand on the banister, according to the sun, uh, ready to jump. But rather than interacting with her, he had no knowledge of her. She was just some stranger in the house. Uh, he just said, good night then, I'm in bed. And was woken about two o'clock by the sound of her body hitting the stairs. The husband also heard the body hit the stairs, but told public or people in the pub that she'd be fine. She tripped over the stairs to the girl. When he made his way up the stairs, he tripped over her corpse on the first bend, which is really annoying. He's running a bit. There's some devil on the stairs. Selfish. She refused to wake up, so he lost it. Then he started beating with his stick. And then he remembered the rule of thumb, which actually says you can beat her for half an hour, but they usually offer a kiss up her. And so he bent in for a kiss. Uh, she didn't taste right at all. What he didn't know was that as she had jumped, she pulled her husband's straight razor across her throat, the downward force ripping the head from the shoulder. So basically what he kissed with the stump on the neck. The head was still in the noose when he lit a candle, he could see it. And he decided to wipe his mouth clean of her blood and flee down Hawks Lane down here towards the Westgate station, which is the old police station down there, Pound Lane. And when, well, we halfway there, about St. Peter Street, he was arrested by the police, screaming the words, she's dead, she's dead. With blood dripping from his face and hands, it looks suspicious to them. And they followed him, or they followed him, it was a snowy night in November uh, 1921, they followed him back through the streets, uh, following the bloodstained footprints in the snow, back to his door here, shone their lantern inside and could clearly see the head and the noose and the decapitated body on the stairs. He'd obviously hacked the head off and made it look like suicide. Mm-hmm. He kept saying he didn't do that. No, it was suicide. Oh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. No, to beat his wife up. He's obviously lost it. He's a mad person. They took him to the Westgate jail, locked him in there for seven days, but he still didn't confess. He was locked in what's called the condemned cell. That, that's where well, you haven't been convicted or anything, but uh, you're pretty well condemned, aren't you? You're caught red-handed. It's an eight-foot-by-eight-foot cube box uh, with, with wood all around it, so you can't smash your head into it. Uh, but they leave you with a belt and a rope so you can hang yourself or pull your trousers <laughs> and uh, seven days later he was tried at Canterbury Crown Court for the murder of his wife and without a jury of his peers found guilty because there was no question of innocence he was caught red handed and he was sentenced to be hung by the neck until he was dead at Winchieve Green on the last public execution in, uh, in the south east at least and witnessed by 350 local people who want to see him get his justice deserved mm. when they tied him to the noose and the gallows there is something called the long drop, which was developed at Tyburn Gallows. You calculate the height of the man, the weight of the man, how long the rope has to be. Too short, and the head will snap off. Too long, and he won't hang properly. And the law says you can't hang a man twice. You know, we did have some human rights. But they also said in the long drop in the gallows at uh, Tyburn that if the noose was tied incorrectly, it should be tied to the, the ear. So when the body drops, it twists and snaps the neck, so they don't really suffer. If, however, the noose is tied incorrectly, uh, he'll snap his windpipe and may survive for about 30 minutes, writhing in agony as the blood pressure builds up. That's exactly what happened in his case. Mm. Uh, the, bo- the, the body dropped, it snapped his windpipe, and you clearly see the cut. But he was alive for about 30 minutes until the blood pressure was enough to blow his eyeballs and his tongue from his head. Oh. At that point, he was cut down and buried outside the city walls in non-consecrated ground because murderers, uh, vagabonds and thieves were always buried outside the city walls. And suicide. And suicide, that's mm. right. Usually at the crossroads of the city, and that's actually where the gallows were. We had four gallows in the city. Uh, not, not all the same time, you know. Busy, busy day of the executioner. If you go to Castle House, you'll find there's a, a deep set window above which it says 1761, which is executioner's window. It was the magistrate's house, and the executioner, with, or the executioner's advisor, would stand at the window when he dropped the sanctuary. That's where they pulled the trap and let him duck for the long drop. So he would have been doing the Irish jig for a couple of minutes. <laughs> and then. Uh, 
Because in Tibet, of course, there were people called hangers-on who would hang on your coattails to pull you down to break your neck to save your life. And they're still on Facebook, hangers-on. I find there's 560 members. They find the chap who killed his wife in the 70s, then, because that's obviously... Yeah, he went to the Isle of Wight. He went to the Isle of Wight because he thought there was no extradition treaty over there. The Isle of Wight is really his time travel, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no extra. No, he, he, yeah, he, he was sentenced. To, he went to Broadmoor because uh, uh, I think he's, I think he's still in there. I'm not sure. He's, it was early release, but in those days I think he got 26 years or something. So he'd probably be close to coming out now. Or if he hasn't done something else in time, like shanking something. Um, now the child though did survive uh, miraculously intact, and. Uh, he was taken into what we call care now, what they call the workhouse then, at uh, Waltham. He was taken to the Waltham poorhouse, and uh, because he had an, he had a, an aunt who lived in Waltham, but they had no relations. The aunt had died within the meantime, so he was sent to the Waltham poorhouse to be cast the poor. And he survived at the age of 16 when he was indentured into the Merchant Navy and served the rest of his life in the Merchant Navy, even surviving the Atlantic convoys, and died in Herne Bay in 1983. Mm. So he had a good life. Well, mm. not that good a life, I mean, ish. good ish. But he had a lot of, lot of, lot of uh, experience yeah. of life. Mm. And um, the result is the building has this rather sad atmosphere, so much so that uh, people who stay in the top room up there often wake during the night to find something stroking the side of their cheek as they sleep. And several people who've spent nights in there have found the bedclothes are removed by unseen hands, and uh, that can happen in marriage too. You probably could <laughs> 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 Bedclothes are removed by unseen hands. They <laughs> They're all nice and warm. You say, what's going on here? Oh, I don't know, I'm fine. Uh, in the room below, in this room here, some students from Christchurch University last year tried to use a Ouija board uh, on the anniversary of the suicide. They didn't know there'd be a suicide because it's not in the Home Information Pack. <laughs> it should be there, shouldn't it? There's a heating amount. <laughs> in America, you've got a, a website called Who Died in My House? Oh, and it lists really? all the people who've been shot in your neighbourhood so you can work out the zip code. And it's, I mean, it's quite useful if you live in the Bronx. Um, there's not many houses left, I don't In this case, uh, when they tried their Ouija board out, they did so at midnight on the anniversary. And the most important question they asked was probably which you asked when you played with the Ouija board. Was that recently or was it? Yeah, oh, when you were a little ago, yeah. you know, naughty girl. Your parents oh, yeah. told you not to. No, they didn't. They were encouraging me. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, well, the, the best, best question to ask one of the board game rules is, is there anybody there? But you're also supposed to say a blessing prayer before you open the board game up, encouraging those people who died of natural causes to join you in your game. Uh, it was developed in France and Germany in the 1880s, uh, really for the spiritualist movement who believed that by contacting military leaders of both sides, they could prevent war. <laughs> the Germans and the French fighting. <laughs> it's unheard of. But, uh, yes, well, <laughs> obviously not the first war. Um, run away, run away. Anyway, um, in this case, uh, the spirit came back almost immediately, yes, as in there is somebody there. Mm-hmm. If you get the answer, no, it's, no, it's a bit, bit pointless. <laughs> <laughs> so, no one will find your corpse. Yeah. Uh, but of course, it's actually one letter at a time. It's very boring. Slow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the next question was, how did you die? Well, the spirit explained the suicide one letter at a time. Very tedious. And then they said, well, why, why would you commit suicide? So she tried to explain the root of thumb, which is even slower. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, one of the students then said, have you heard of Celine Dion? Have you heard of Celine Dion? Or Celine Dion. It's got whiskers, smells of fish. And when... That's her song, isn't it? When... I don't think the spirit world have heard of Celine Dion. And that's when 
the spirit recreated the sound of its demise, and that's when people in the building downstairs that were still doing stock taking that night heard what sounded like a sack of laundry hit the stairs and a crack of rope. And we're really, have you ever heard of a, a belt crack? Have you ever tried that? Mm. I'm sure you, mm. you don't use it anymore, no, but yeah, yeah, uh, in the earlier days, yeah, yeah, spice it all up. <laughs> um, but, but it was that sort of crack, well, it was a crack of crack of belt, that sort of. I got out of But uh, in this case, uh, they, they got frightened, and actually, well, she threw the Ouija board out of this window, theorising that would obviously the, the ghost would follow it home, like a, like a sort of you know taxi, and uh, she went to bed in that same room and. She, she, the, the, the door locks with a bolt and she woke up in the morning to find the door was open but still bolted so something had basically unbolted it without her knowledge and, uh, but if you're looking for somewhere to stay city centre location, £5 a month rent that's fantastically good rent possibly nothing at all, it's always lovely and cool in the winter so let's move on from here You're listening to The Garbage Pod Where your input is our output Structure is actually early medieval. So, although it looks pretty modern from the outside, you see the medieval panelling inside. The top you can't really see, but it's being restored. It's been empty for about 20 years. It was called Il Vaticano. Opened in 1981 for the arrival in uh, 1982. A man called Pope John Paul II, remember the artist formerly known as the Pope? He came round here in a Popermobile. Local children thought it was some sort of ice cream van, shouting, Give us a 99 then! And uh, very rude to them, says, I'm the Pope, now bugger off. Now, I think they called it Il Vaticano, theorising that the old, the old Pope was going to stop and say, Hey, Vaticano, you're popping a bit of pizza. Uh, but it didn't really work for it. And the handbrake to come back. This is Tiny Tim's tier in our next location. Not every, not every building in the city is haunted, and not every building is included in the tour, but this is a lovely old property. Has anybody been into Tiny Tim's? Not yet. Oh, yeah, it's your plan, is it? Hmm. That's not what I'm doing. Anyway, <laughs> Tiny Tim's was constructed around 1318 by a man called George Newman. The original property, this is the main entrance to a Wealdon property, which originally stretched next door, by the way, down to the off-license, and all the way down here as well. So it was one long Wealdon property, but originally had the overhanging jutted frontage like this, but in the 1980s, it was the scene of a horrific fire in which one man died. They found his body, ironically, where the fire alarm now stands, on the landing here. Parts of a charred pelvic bone and some pretty crispy Chinese spare ribs on their phone. So, CSI his joke. And that was when this place was a Chinese restaurant. The owner apparently had invested heavily with something called the Triads, international financiers, mm. Southeast Asia. <laughs> Putting a rates of interest, better than Santander. No doubt of Jessica Innes turning up in your front room. I'm scared of the living me. That's worse than a ghost. It made me look really unfit. Now, uh, when, uh, when they do the restoration on the property, it was owned at that time by the Church of England. They bought it from the original owners in 71. Uh, the original owners were the Newman family. They'd been living in existence, this probably, since 1318 till 1971. It's quite a long period of time. You know, you buy a wimpy home, you probably three years, move on. <laughs> but uh, buy a medieval house, you know, move in, stay. <laughs> Got all your memories. The, uh, the chap George Newman, the original designer and builder, was a naval officer for the Royal Navy. We call it the senior service. We often think the senior service didn't really start until... Uh, Henry VIII, but we know that the timbers from, the, from his ship, these timbers here, are Royal Navy ship's timbers because they have something on the edge called the fiddle. See the edge is sort of chamfered edge. This is Royal Navy chamfered fiddle, as it's called. And uh, 
expression to be on the fiddle comes from the fact that when they had square plates on the, uh, on the Navy ships, if there was food served over the edge of the plate, you were on the fiddle. <laughs> it's nothing to do with the violins. So either you knew the cook or the cook had done something special for you, so you <laughs> something on the fiddle. Now, mm. now when, the, uh, when they did the examination of these beads, these, these timber cuts here, you see these cut here, that's part of a, uh, the ribbing at the very edge of, a, of a, a warship called Le Fleury. They know that because uh, Royal Navy ship's timber has Royal Navy marks on it inside the, uh, the mason, uh, the Carver's joints, and it tells you which ship it came from. So they traced the Carver's marks at Portsmouth, where it was built. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a flagship, well, not the flagship, the second flagship of the Royal Navy, and it sailed from Ramsgate in Kent to Honfleur and Bilbao. They knew that because of records, the Royal Navy are good record keepers. And uh, when, he, when he retired from the Navy at the age of 32, because uh, retirement was much earlier, a bit like doctors and solicitors and uh, bankers, and uh, <laughs> when he retired, he was offered his ship uh, to do with as he pleased. Now, in those days, you would share your booty with your crew, and uh, the, the major portion, 80%, went to the captain anyway, but the rest was shared with the crew. And he used the timbers of his ship to build his house. So these are ship's timbers. The, the staircase is the ship's staircase, and it's in beautiful condition. Like torches going, but uh, it's been fully restored. It's, gr it's uh, English seasoned oak. And they also found in the restoration behind all the wood panelling, they found this original medieval uh, chimney stack in the middle here. It's made with London brick, built around uh, 1388, so it's quite late. The original building wouldn't have had a chimney stack in it because it would have had uh, smoke going out through the roof timbers. And uh, the gentleman would have slept in the room above in something called the solar. Um, we'll see the solar in a bit, but uh, the. Um, when they were doing the restoration, they also found in the middle the rectangular shape of bricks. You see that it looks like a relatively new brick. Mm. This, this is the entrance to a priest's hole, uh, put in there about uh, 1500 to allow priests a hiding place should there be a war. Imagine a war in England. <laughs> Couldn't see that happening. The Catholics say, Gill! They wouldn't say things like that, would they? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, the entrance to the priest's hole is here. At the top, this is sort of uh, looks like a looks like a, a lintel. It's in fact a hinge originally. They've uh, sealed it in there. So it would have hinged at the bottom there, and the priest would have dived through the flames. Uh, through the flames, he would have dived into a hole between the chimney stacks. Now, they sent a six-year-old child into that hole. They couldn't get a builder in, because builders are big lads. Uh, but he sent his own daughter in the builder, because uh, children need to know about work experience. It was the day called Bring Your Daughter to Work Day with you in the 1980s. <laughs> Uh, now it's called My Bad Day. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, she was, they put a rope around her waist and stuff like that, and uh, she found herself standing uh, about six feet below where we stand, not in a cellar, but in a just a sort of a casement, uh, which had animal bones in it, about three or four hundred cats and dogs carcasses placed in there by medieval builders to ward off evil spirits. It's fair to say that they didn't find any devils in there, so quite possibly it does work. If you're trying to get rid of devils, throw in a few cats. Because even the mummy, you've probably seen the film The Mummy, he doesn't like cats, does he? Mm. Mm. Cats. The cats are the guardians of the dead. And medieval people believe that too. Now, inside there, she also found a staircase which had been built inside this uh, drop, drop area, and she clambered up there. A brave girl, I think it was six. My dad said, Get in that dark digi hole. I said, No way. Calling child services. Childlands, if it existed. Uh, she clambered up to, up to about the midway point here and found a small doorway which she opened. 
pretty nervous, I would have thought by then, but she found the door had been bricked out from the inside. You see mortar had been squeezed out from the other side towards her, mm. suggesting somebody bricked themselves up inside, probably at some point. She came back down the stairs, and as she did so, she caught uh, a very cold feeling on this side. You see where the little tiny bricks are? The bedding of something called a rush space. It's like a little trough. The idea was that the priest could go to the bottom thing, run up the stairs, jump into the trough, and hide until the, the danger had passed and then run up the stairs to his, uh, his priest's room which if you stand back here you can see the, the, uh, the window in the middle is the priest's room it's a bricked in window made to look like a modern frontier that's the priest's hole there see there and when uh, when she shone a torch in this area the, the, the trough she saw bags and bags of silver coins and flatware or flatware so silver serving dishes and plates and crockery and stuff and she tried to grab some because you know pocket money wasn't very good yeah. Yeah, worth a try I mean, did you get pocket money when you were little? no uh, yep. no you did generous uh, Ouija board and pocket money yeah all now when uh, when she tried to take out these bags of uh, bags of silver coins uh, she found they're all tied together with string and then beneath the silver bags because there's still a long sort of line of silver bags she found bags of twigs of some kind didn't know what they were in the darkness and she basically pulled everything out shoved it through the hole so they could look at it she kept pulling these bags of yeah. bags of uh, strings and then of course she came across uh, shrouds human shrouds within which were the bodies of a mother and seven children They'd been buried in there during the English Civil War to prevent them being murdered by Parliament. You see, at that time, the, the Parliament army said that if there were any Catholics in the city, living or dead, they'd be taken out and burned mm. uh, so the ashes could be scattered, therefore they'd never go to heaven. And the only way that family could prevent that from happening was bury inside their properties, unconsecrated ground, admittedly, but with a priest. Yeah. meant they were definitely going to the, uh, the way ahead. Mm. Now, at the top of the building now is the priest's room. It's been restored, as it would have looked, about 1660, and uh, they found the body of the priest in there. It would be bricked up, completely airtight. When they broke into it, they got air rushing in and stuff like that. They found the remains of a King James VI Bible, uh, remains of a rosary bead, church candles all over the place. And you could also see scratch marks around the chimney stack when he tried to scratch his way out. He must have thought to himself, ginger nuts, or something like that. Like, ginger nuts, I'm sure it's ginger nuts, or food, or well, you know, sandwiches. <laughs> In his own blood, etched the word sandwiches, but of course, sandwiches didn't exist then. But he'd uh, just biscuits. When were they Now, when they removed the body of the priest, the building took this really depressing atmosphere, so much so that when it was a visitor information centre then, people would come in and feel misfortune, unhappy, and go home again. But you know, that's the French way. And uh, God bless the French. Now, uh, when you go in there now, you'll find the room actually says ghost room on it, which is not a bad name, you know, for a ghost room. Uh, and being English, uh, you'll obviously go straight in and say, leave this to me, I know what I'm doing here. I've used Ouija boards. And he'll say, OK, I'll stay down here. But uh, if you go in the room, there's a chair that says, don't sit in the chair. You know, the sort of thing that we see all the time. Don't you? And you know in England, if you see a sign saying, do not, you've got to give it a try, aren't you? Because if you see a cupboard that says, do not enter, you'll go have a look at that one. There's a just electrical cover, something boring, isn't it? But if you see that sign, you think, well, who's going to stop me? When you sit in the chair, the only thing that happens is the door swings closed, slams locked. And uh, it's, it's only a latch, but it's so tight you can't get it open. And a uh, very sad feeling of just coldness. I mean, it's not a happy feeling at all. It is unnaturally cold in that room anyway, for no reason other than that maybe somebody died in there. And when you sit in the chair, you feel the children just stroking the back of your neck. Initially, I mean, for me, it's okay, but some women go, <laughs> same right. And uh, then you hear the children whispering, 
in a language called Middle English. Now, you probably had to study Middle English at school, didn't you? Oh, yes. Yeah, and you probably... <laughs> Canterbury Tales, do you think? Canterbury Tales? Oh, no, but I've read it. Yeah. Mm. Well, in the original? No. Oh, no, it's much more fun. Is it? No. Yeah. Basically, uh, I mean, like with the Canterbury Tales, is one that up to do the shorter sort of the doctor march and pass the router, but everybody be in a such record, which we tuned into the floor. Then from every half an altar, every shy, then every galunda, pilgrims win their weary way to Canterbury, the holy list from Martyr for to seek, for he made them well when they were sick. That's just a prologue. Anyway, but their song is a song sung to children by priests. They were usually sung before they were dying. So the song goes, All my candles braid and break to candle lichter, foul lichter. They're basically in translation says those children that see this bright candle by the bedroom not see in the morning because they'll be dead! They'll just say no. He bricked himself up to stop himself being taken and burned. Very lot of people died in the Civil War in Canterbury. You might assume that by that time they'd have just said, oh, we're all Protestant, you know, it's a new church and stuff. But of course, they, we're all still in balance. We had, mm. you know, King James VI came back and suddenly we're all Catholic again, or were we? And I'm not quite sure. And he was embracing Protestantism. And then half the church said, well, you can't, you know, you can be burning in hell. So they had to, they had to confirm. Now, when you come out of that room, most people need the loo pretty quickly. But when you come down the stairs, the children, if you're lucky, will come with you. And being English, we spend our life apologising, don't we? They used to think, oh, pardon me, terrible school. Oh, pardon me. Dead children, sorry, terrible And so you come and run down the stairs, even when you're not in the building, and people aren't in the building, later in the evenings in November, you hear the sound of running footsteps, and they stop as soon as somebody puts their foot on the bottom tread. Mm. It's rather more spooky than the footsteps themselves because it so abruptly stops. Like sort of records, I'm just kidding, yeah. love it. So I'm using the word record before podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you uh, have a pop in there, it's only 38 quid for a cup of tea and a scone. <laughs> nice. yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe that's one of the reasons people say misfortune and happy we're going. <laughs> here, you stand over here with me, looking back to the back of uh, Tiny Tim's, you can see it's actually a medieval structure. You see up here? See the tiny windows, and there at the back is the solar, the big wide windows. Looks like a weaving house, but they're actually, they're, the windows are wide and open, so the master could see when the sun came up. This points east, so he'd see the uh, sun, sorry, points west rather. So he'd see the sun as it came up in the morning and brighten his day. He slept in a box bed, they found the remains of it, in what is now the kitchen or the, ty- the tea rooms. And the footing of the box bed showed that it was a, quite a small thing, about eight foot uh, long and about six foot wide. And the box bed was designed, they'd actually crawl inside it and the lid would go down, keeping all the heat and the warmth in. But it would stop you. Uh, eating maggots during sleep because the maggots and the spiders would drop into your mouth during sleep. That's one of the reasons they developed later on something called the four-poster bed, which had a curtain around it to keep you warm. It also had the, uh, the canopy on it to stop you again having you know, stuff falling in your mouth during sleep, which is not very romantic. What's that looking out the window there? Just a little girl. Um, yeah. They often uh, do little see little children in these windows here. This was uh, the same property all the way down. See, it's, it's, it looks all higgledy-piggledy now, but originally one long wheeled and probably like that design there. The Victorians rebuilt it to make it look more modern. Hello, Britain Yankee. If I come into your pub, will I get a firkin of ale? Certainly, sir. You can have a firkin pie, you can have firkin fish and chips, and watch the firkin football on the firkin telly. Bloody Americans. Well, our barman may be a bit of a lad, but two lads you won't want to miss are Phil Clark and Mike Lingerfelter, 
down at the Britain Yankee. Join them every fortnight in Chicago's very own online British pub, where you'll join in some good old pub chat and perhaps even enjoy a pint of your favourite ale. Check the boys out at www.thebritainyankee.com and remember, no MP3 player or iPod is necessary. All you need is a computer and some speakers. So we'll see you down the pub, and until then, cheers! Now, uh, we stand here by the old church tower of St Margaret's Church. This church was used by a man called Matthew Hopkin. Anybody heard of Matthew Hopkin? Witchfinder General? Witchfinder General, indeed, sir. He was the Witchfinder General. He was a solicitor from uh, Manningtree in Essex who realised that the witchcraft laws in England really needed updating. <laughs> so as, uh, as he was a self-appointed Witchfinder General, he uh, wrote to Oliver Cromwell and said, you know, I can do your favour here and uh, get rid of the whole bucket of witches. In his own village, he tortured 18 women to found out they were all witches. Uh, apparently, they all refused to dance with him as well, so I wonder if that was the start. Uh, he had a huge wart on his chin, so big that he could... Uh, he had, he had sort of hairs growing from the wall, and he could weave those hairs into a macrame basket for holding oranges. So that was his party <laughs> trick. He would walk around the, uh, the lane and say, Would you care for an orange? Oh my Jesus! And, uh, <laughs> oh, would you care for a dance then? No way! Right, you're a witch. Now, being a witch man, he knew what he was looking for. It turns out he was a witch himself, so that's how he knew what he was looking for. The rules originally were that if you accused someone of being a witch and they said uh, no, you had to let them go. So conviction rates were terribly low. <laughs> He changed that to saying if they said no three times, then they were witches. <laughs> and that's when conviction rates went through the roof. When he came to Canterbury, he tested 1,800 women over a four-year period and found most of them were a bit witchy. The real test was here at the church tower, where he'd hoist them up the tower with the bell ropes until they were at the very top of the tower with their feet touching this plinth up here. At that point, the... Uh, the man himself would ask them from down, he'll shout, he wouldn't sort of whisper, Art thou truly a witch? If they said yes, then uh, they were lowered down and burned. But most of them were still in denial, deep mm. denial, and they would say no. So they cut the rope, let them fly down. <laughs> and most of them weren't very good at flying headfirst <laughs> into concrete. Yeah, yeah. Of course, there were railings around here as well. This area here was dug up in 1995 by Christchurch University's forensics unit, and they found over 840 human skulls of generally the same genome. We know that they're not in the uh, the genome project now, so that means basically the whole families are wiped out here uh, in the 16th century or 17th century. So would they burn the whole family? They generally burn the whole family for safety. Yeah. Health and safety is very <laughs> Well, absolutely. <laughs> we, don't want, we don't want witches spreading around. The reason we believe, or they believe, that uh, you could burn them is because they, not because they were practicing witchcraft, because they were in league with the devil. The reason they could fly was they could fly to the midway point between heaven and earth and communion with the devil. And when they communed with the devil, the devil would leave his mark. And the devil's mark is generally a third nipple, mm-hmm. called a witch's teat. Yeah. So they would be checked for the witch's teat. If they found the witch's teat, generally it was a place where they feel no pain. And to test them, they had a, a town square man called a witch pricker. Uh, he had a, a rod. Oh, that's amazing. What a job, eh? Jobs to stay when you got a witch pricker. Well, that sounds like a good job. Uh, the witch pricker's job was to prick the witch with a, uh, a, a stick, a bit like this, but with a retractable pin at the end of it uh, for show. The, the unretracted pin, the, the one with the pin, it would be stabbed some stranger in the crowd. Go, just got a bloody pin in it. And then they would retract the pin and they stab the witch anywhere. This is a, yeah, that's a stick, whatever. Oh, she's covered in these little witches. Teats everywhere about her body is she cannot feel no pain, therefore, she's definitely a witch. 
and that was all the crowd needed. Oh, yeah, she's a witch. I, I felt the pain. She didn't feel the pain. Why does she not feel pain? Oh, she's a witch. She's a thing with the devil. The devil's covering it some sort of weird covering. But she didn't feel no pain. Why they had a Western dress and something, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Nonetheless, the other, tr- the other trick was to get the confession was to uh, lay boards of wood over the witch and then pile rocks on her until she confessed. Uh, crushing. This is called a hoisting, and most towns in England had a place called hoisting outside their city. Uh, Hitchin has a hoisting, a hoisting post. Often people think it's a really high gallows, about, uh, about 55 feet is the basic hoisting. And from that height, uh, with your arms smashed, uh, you couldn't defend yourself. If they were witches, they were taken to the... Uh, the Sometimes the Westgate, sometimes the, to uh, Winchie Green, generally nailed to a post with a two-foot iron rod through the throat, to which they get a confession at that point. When you nail somebody's throat to a tree, they go... <laughs> and that, apparently, in the Dutch language, is, yes, you've got the yes. old witch. According <laughs> to the confession of the time, they only actually burned one witch in Canterbury. Most of the others died here. We had a ducking stool in Canterbury. We never used that for ducking witches. It ruins your perception. The laughing stool was used at Fordwich in Kent for waking up drunk people from uh, about 1300 till 1960. <laughs> I could take that out my son. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we but if you, if you want to stop somebody drinking, uh, it, Bethan alcoholics and olives, dunk them in the water, drown them, and they tend to not drink anymore. <laughs> but to get so scared, they go, <laughs> uh, will you do it again? No, 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 sure. <laughs> and okay. Uh, and um, although the ducking stool we have there was brought over to Canterbury in about 1950 because there was a real lack of tourism but uh, suddenly the ducking stool brought lots of tours in and people seriously come by, by bus from Margate to look at the ducking stool they'd be told if you don't buy souvenirs you'll be at that ducking stool <laughs> suddenly with the West Country Essendon now uh, the, uh, the ground here as I say was uh, covered with the uh, with the excavations and the inside churchyard. You may wonder why churchyards have all these gates and things. Is this stop the dead getting out? It's simply for grave robbing. Mm. Stop grave robbers getting in. Many churches have something called a sexton. Have you heard the expression sexton? Mm-hmm. Sexton's job was to protect the churchyards. Mm. He would sit in the church all night. Nothing to harm him there. They were already dead. But sometimes, every six months, the sexton would dig the graves over. Anybody who'd been buried for six months was dug up and the bones were placed in something called an ossuary in a tomb beneath the church. And then every six years... It's all about sixes. The bones were taken up and burned in a bone fire. <laughs> a bone fire is now called a bonfire. Because bone fire, for some reason, scared children. But a bonfire's fine, isn't it? <laughs> the bone fires used to take place around November time. Around November the 5th, that. in fact. <laughs> a bonfire for burning witches was only used for, well, Guido Fourcache during the uh, 1605 riot and, uh, and for one or two witches. Burning was very expensive. Uh, generally a hanging, much cheaper. Because wood, wood is expensive. They used to use something called faggot. Have you heard of faggot? Not you personally, but... Uh, <laughs> faggots are bundles of wood, basically bundles right. of broom, and they were placed at the foot of the witch. Sometimes hot tar was poured over the witch, sometimes feathers. Uh, she was tarred and feathered and then dragged through the streets so people knew who's the witch. Who's the witch? Be the one with the tar and feathers in? Oh, that'd be it. She'd be tarred and feathered, dragged through the streets. I'm not a bloody witch. I'm just an ordinary person. You just called me this because I have a West Country accent. <laughs> so, for some reason... So let's move on from here, but if you... Uh, you feel the presence of the witches and It's because a lot of witches came from this, isn't there? That's right, yeah. Not just the most... Yeah, how The only witches is Essex. The church was broken into by people called vandals in the 1970s. Anybody heard of vandals? They have vandals in Essex, don't they? When they broke in, they used a sledgehammer because the vicar wouldn't give them a key, and just inside the wall here, they see a huge stab of stone on the ground lovely gold writing on it that says do not break the holy seal he said it in Latin foolishly you've got to put it in English right, <laughs> haven't you? uh, and uh, they stood on it while hitting it with their sledgehammers forgetting of course Newton's third law of motion which of course you all know, you know for every action there was an 
allergic reaction. Well, they soon found out, uh, because it was quite a thin slab. Uh, they cracked it twice, and then they fell 49 feet into the void, which is a good long bungee jump. Uh, that's right, you know, it's not bad. But without the rope, never get that. they survive? They did survive. They broke both their legs. They had two each. And uh, they <laughs> their cries for help were ignored by local people here when they heard them shouting, help us, help us, we're trapped in the grave, but we're not dead. But they were from Gloucestershire, so of course it was actually more like the world's weekend. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so they were ignored because it was October the 29th, 1973, close to Halloween. Yes. So they thought it was just people taking the mickey. So they ignored them for three days and three nights. Yeah. Eventually the police came. Nobody noticed the damage of the church at the back there. Of course, nobody went to the church. And uh, when the police came and they heard this sound, it was, it was uh, late evening, sort of uh, November 1st or 2nd. Uh, they said, Are you right there, boys? We've broken our legs. Well, I don't know the accent's not very right, but uh, <laughs> we've broken our legs. For three days they survived, and they survived by licking the moisture dripping on top of them. They had to assume there was some sort of water in there or some kind. Mm. But what they didn't know was it was an airtight tomb. And all that happened was then they broke the tomb lid, air and moisture rushed in, and they'd actually fallen through about five or 600 corpses. They'd been yeah. backfilled over many years. It was airtight because there was a smallpox burial pit. And uh, the smallpox burials were so big in the 1850s, they had to bury in the city churches. There weren't enough living to take the dead out of the city. So they had to bury in the city churches and seal them up and put a sign, don't mm. burn the seal, yeah. just in case. You know, some idiot from Gloucestershire came from one point and said, oh, they'll have a nick the gold in there. <laughs> um, they, um, they'd ingested smallpox bacillus in their three-day rest. They'd broken their spines, lower back, they're paralysed. And they were taken to hospital for traction and treatment. But they died two weeks later of smallpox bacillus. Last oh. two cases in Kent. Uh, mm. 79, the smallpox virus was eradicated in England with the uh, it's called serum as it was created. Mm. So it's now eradicated. But you can still get it in North America mm. actually, you know, if you look for it. Um, prairie dogs, raccoons and rats carry uh, vials disease, which is uh, smallpox bacillus. So if you get bitten by a rat, do get it checked out. There's typhus as well, you can always pleasure. And uh, Ebola, of course, we were looking forward to that coming, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. It's a good way to lose weight for me. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, on the anniversary, people often hear the sound coming from this vent here. This is, these were put in after the... Uh, they're actually quite new. They were put in the 70s to ventilate the, uh, the tombs. They removed all the bodies and burned them at uh, Barron Crematorium and scattered the ashes over the, uh, the west gate of Canterbury, which is the, the Catholic cemetery. Now, these were Catholic graves. So if you're ever in that sort of situation, I remember a romantic weekend away, and he says, you're going to bury your alive in corpses, say no. The chances are you probably won't survive to tell the tale. The, uh, the moisture, most of them are actually ingesting uh, vitreous humour, which is the eyes hmm. of the corpses, and they only basically became sort of alive, as it were, because of the moisture coming into them. So, just a cheery thought. Laura LaRue here. Whenever I'm in the potosphere, there's only one place to be. The Garbage Pod. Hello there, Garbage Podophiles. Gareth Jones from Gareth Jones on Speed here. My name is Dr. Ryan Kobrick, and I'm the executive director of the Yuri's Night Global Executive Team. Rock the Potosphere and rock the planet. My name is Kate Arkless Gray, but many people know me as Space Kate. Hey, Mark. Uh, welcome to NASA Edge. Yeah, it's good to be on the Garbage Pod. This is, is the Garbage, garbage Pod. 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 So is that, that's medieval? That's medieval. Uh, 1190. An extension of the roof, and they put this carving on the corner because the, the woman who lived here, Madame de Jardin, she was a French Norman, uh, had uh, basically uh, done a deal with the devil. So they had to put the devil's sign out there to warn people not to deal with it. <laughs> so you shouldn't deal with nonconformists. 
the sort of non-conformists in those days had uh, sort of jobs that we didn't really want. We did uh, clearing the dead of the jewellery, which you were given a penny a day uh, for as much jewellery as you could get to the church. Uh, sometimes you couldn't get the ring off the finger, so you just sliced the, the whole finger off mm. and just put it in your pocket, and you present that to the church. And they say, well, there's your penny. Thanks for a whole bag of rings. <laughs> and uh, the other jobs they had were catching rats, which were familiar animals such as a cat, dog, or, or owl, which they're trained to catch the, you know, the rats. And the third job was to clear the sweets, uh, streets of uh, sewage. And with a bess and broom, they would sweep streets, street sweepers. Uh, but they were nonconformists. So if you put those three things together, we have really what we see as a witch in the 17th century, a pointy hat, a broomstick, and a cat. The pointy hat was to fill with herbs, take away the stench of death and the plague pits. Uh, didn't actually cure them of plague, but uh, most of them quite lucky, you know. Um, <laughs> plague's not always a killer, is it? Yeah, generally. Um, <laughs> ring a ring of roses, pocket full of poses, tissue and tissue, all fall down dead. So if you do see a little face of Jack and the Green anywhere in England, you'll know that this is a pagan custom. So on the side is the oak leaves signifying it's oak wood, and on the other side it says it's date. It's 1190, usually in Latin, you know, just to warn people not to deal. It'll really be brightly painted in green, so you'd be able to spot it from the high street. But now walking down, you just look past it. Oh, fish and chips. So let's continue on the footsteps of the this is the Checkers of Hope, Solomon the Goldsmith's house, and this is called uh, Christ's Hospital. Called Christ's Hospital because Christ himself obviously was ill at some point and being nailed to a cross, he needed his fixing up, and uh, he wouldn't have come here. This, uh, this accommodation slept 900 pilgrims to a floor on rush matting, straw, fleas, lice and maggots, and like Holiday Express, they changed the bedding every seven days, whether to be or not, allegedly. <laughs> However, when they turfed the bedding from the streets, from the, from the roofs, they used to scoop it straight out the windows on the streets here. You see the scoop shapes here from floor level to the edge. They'd scrape all the bedding straight onto the streets, from the top floor down to the next level straight out. Uh, it was on a Sunday morning at five o'clock when the sun came up, they used to get rid of the poo. And there was no sanitation in England. Bathing was only took place once in April. One time a year we had a bath. And often, uh, do you hear the expression? Throwing the baby out with the bath water it comes from that same period because the, the master of the house would have the bath first. It's basically a barrel of cold water. He would, he would wash in that. Then his sons would have a bath. Then his daughters. Then his wife, of course. Then the children. And then least of all, the baby. But by that time, of course, uh, the bathroom was so dirty you could quite often throw the baby out with the bath water because you wouldn't be able to find the baby and say it's black and disgustingly <laughs> dirty. And this sanitation problem only changed in 1983 when we had a first flushing toilet in Canterbury. A huge clue for the men. After that, they never cured again. No, it's all done. No, it's going at once. Now, when they turfed the bedding out, they often shout a warning to the French people. This street was full of French market traders. It was called Rue de Marché Fran uh, Artisan Francaise. And basically it was artisans, sort of bread makers and people like that, you know, sort of as you find in Calais marketplace all the time. And uh, they would have, set their market stalls up here with no cannabis, and then the would come flying out the windows. And the French word for lookout, I'm going to throw a bag of you, is regard douleur. But it has to be pronounced in the French language. Now, you probably speak fluent French, come from the West Country, but um, you don't need to use it. We did all the time, every day. It's in a problem. If you speak French with a French accent, the French understand you immediately. There's no fun in that. So we developed a language around here called franglais. It's French with a strong English accent. Confuse the foreigner. If you say, uh, bonjour, je suis les anglais, the French say, are you English? They go, yeah. They say, would you like a beer? Yeah. There we go. Force the foreigner to speak English. It's much more fun. <laughs> if, however, it's an important expression, such as regard douleur, which means look out for water, you must pronounce it the style of Maurice Chevalier from the film Gigi. <laughs> Where would the word be with a little girl? <laughs> and uh, if you shout that, uh, the French obviously bow their heads and get out of the way. If, however, you shout it in franglais, regard douleur becomes... Got 
actually, to this day, if you shout, even that is, well, uh, <laughs> if you shout in Calais, the, the French often look up the first time and go, oh, no, it's in their jeans. Well, that's jeans. Oh, uh, so uh, if you see a Frenchman, just say the word, vive la France, vive le République, et vos chances, Monsieur Long. The hotel is not made of coffee, it's probably a confused American. <laughs> Buskers of modern England are quite new, but of course they've been around in Canterbury for all their lives. Canterbury's been the thoroughfare and the joining of so many cultures. This road was the main road to Ashford in Kent. This road up here, the main road to London, the one down that way to Dover. And behind me, the main road to Margate. Of course, not many people went to Margate in the 1300s. There was nothing there, really. Not even the Turner Centre had opened. And even now, there's... Anyway. Look up the corner of this little building here. This is the face of the Lion of England carved on this building in 1199 for a man called Richard the Lionheart. Richard the Lionheart, still popular in TV culture, as the uh, only man to look like Sean Connery in the film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. The only one occasionally seen to be related to Maid Marion for the first time in history. We never saw that in the history book coming. Of course, Sean Connery said, you can marry my, my Maid Marion. I'm sure he made Marion himself, didn't he? <laughs> now, uh, this lady is called Mercery Lane. It's named after called Le Messier or Huguenots who arrived in Canterbury from the Spanish Lake countries in the 60s and 70th centuries. If you look above the head, you can see the devil in the detail. The expression, the devil's in the detail, comes from the time when... Well, uh, his name's Dribbly, and his name's Bloomy. Thank you. I'll tell you what, then, you know what? I was at home the other night, and he ate all the strawberry jam, and he ate all the blueberry jam. I told him I was coming back from it. Do you know me? Yes, I'm sorry, do you tell me? I'm Sarty, Ma I'm Marty, Sato. Yeah. I'm taking him and hit little mother down the broad stairs bay, they ain't getting out again, they ain't done no more. Good for you. Right, sir. Lord Mayor is very well tonight. Come on, Sherwood. Now, you have heard expression, I mean, I suppose, you've heard the expression, the devil's in the detail. Have you heard that expression? Yeah. This is where it comes from. In medieval England, houses of ill repute had the sign of the devil in their details to tell pilgrims what was inside them. There were no signboards, nobody could read or write. Pub would have an ale staker, a stick of, uh, of ash wood with a ring of vine leaves at the end of it. That was the sign of a pub. Uh, sometimes you'd have an image, possibly of a red lion or a, a bell, so you'd know that was a, a pub called the Bell, or the Golden Lion, or etc. The names of pub signs, even now, White Lion, came from the crest of arms of the soldiers that were given the land and money to build the pub. So often their regiment would pay them off, and the money they got, they built the pub with. So the Red Lion was, I was part of the King's Army, the White Lion, I was part of the Yorkist Cavaliers. So, so that's where it comes from. The Duke of Cumberland, of course, you know, that was my regiment, so I named it after the Duke who looked after me. Now, uh, we see the devil in the detail, we believe on this side is the unhappy devil, because this is the devil that's going to say, where are you going, dirty little beast, when you're <laughs> popping into the house of ill repute. The devil is always on your shoulder, he's on your left shoulder, sinister. On your right shoulder is a little angel, Dexter. Sinister and Dexter, who's better to be ambi-sinister or better to be ambidextrous? Well, obviously, if you want to be ambi-sinister, you can be an MP. <laughs> <laughs> you'll never pay taxes for somebody else. 
Now, when, when the devil's jumped up to your shoulder and gruffly said, where are you going, dirty little beast? As you come from the house of all repute and the ladies of Canterbury have helped you on the way to hell, a happy little devil jumps back on your shoulder and says, you're coming straight to hell with me to burn the dirty damnation. And most people felt guilty. You'd often see people coming out of these houses with their head bowed, their hands clasped before them, as if in prayer, some religious pilgrim. But of course, the real reason was because the sewage is coming flying out the window. <laughs> and that's why they say things like, after you, ladies first. <laughs> yeah. If a gentleman says, after you, you say, no, you can go first. <laughs> so maybe next time you see a lady, you say, ladies first, what do you say? No. <laughs> Now, as we walk down here towards the cathedral, we see the bells chiming. It was on this road also we had that Pope John Paul II visit. He came down here in a Ferrari Tessarossa Popemobile. Registration 66, flame red. Some Catholic joke. Now, if you look behind you, just up here behind you, you see how narrow the street is? Exactly the same width as it was when Geoffrey Chaucer walked down here in 1387. Now, that is narrow enough that you could reach across to your friend's house the other side of the road, certainly at that end at least. <laughs> and if you think about fire and the fire of London, see how close the houses were, explain why it spread so quickly. Don't forget also that the roofs were made of thatch. Every house was made of thatch roof, and a fire spark would spring everywhere across. And don't forget, of course, they weren't smoking, so there was no, not much smoking. People often carried a flame with them for, for lighting their way, a candle perhaps. Generally not a rainbow candle, like blow out immediately. And also remember the fact that this time of night, at eight bells, you've heard the expression eight bells, you see pub signs, eight bells are the curfew bell in every walled city. If you weren't within the city walls at eight bells, you'd be outside the city limits and liable to be murdered by some stranger. With you inside the city limits, you weren't be allowed on the streets after 8pm either. So you had to be in your accommodations getting drunk or going to bed. And as most of the population of those times lived by the sun, they were well in bed by eight o'clock, you'd be already asleep by eight. It was quite a sleepy little city in that respect. And then at five o'clock when the sun came up, everything goes hell for leather, all the street markets setting up, the noise enough to wear the devil himself. So you wouldn't really want a, an inn down here. That inn over there is called the Checkers of Hope. It had accommodation for 1,000 people. Each room could sleep 10 strangers in 100 rooms, and 10 people slept in each room. It's supposed to be one person per room, but because they're English, many of yeah. They sublet to nine strangers. <laughs> Things haven't changed, have they, really? <laughs> Spanhead Productions are a small, independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spanheadproductions.weebly.com. Now, if you, if you look at the uh, inscription on the doorway, can you see the doorway here? It looks like Shell Oil has done a sponsorship deal. But this is before the Shrine of St. Thomas was constructed, the nearest holy shrine in the Holy Lands from here, the place called Santiago de Compostela, St. James. St. James the Conch Shell, you might have had cookie sandwiches once in your life. You've got this weird shell with a bit of potato in it. It's a uh, bit of, uh, well, I mean, mm. civil service, you're probably a huge, expensive dining room. You're joking, aren't you? <laughs> uh, nonetheless, uh, this was paid for by the Catholic Church. 
and the doorway is a smaller doorway, it's a pilgrim doorway. Pilgrims themselves are about this height. The biggest pilgrim, even Cooney's Geoffrey Chaucer and Henry VIII could get through here without bending over. We often think of Henry VIII looking like Eric Banner. Apparently I don't think he ever looked like that. He was short squat little thing. See how tall that is? That's the mm. Tudor Rose, we'd like yeah. to call it. Yeah. The outside doorway is the Archbishop's doorway, the dimensions of Thomas Beckett. He was six foot six with flaming red hair and a ginger beard, plus a mitre. This was how tall he was, about seven foot. If you should see Thomas Beckett as a ghost, he's big enough you go, oh my God, he'd say, no, I'm the Archbishop, we're all close. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently when people did see him, they did go, oh my God, he's massive. Because he was the, about the tallest man in England, the king was about the same height, because they had good diets. Both he and the king went to school together at a place called St Paul's School in London, or St Paul's Cathedral School as it is now. And if you were at school with the king, the chances are you'd probably have a pretty good diet, because he'd invite you around for parties and stuff, you know. Jelly and ice cream, I've never had this stuff, is it? <laughs> Now, following the, uh, the split between church and crown that happened around uh, 1167 or so, Henry II said in an unguarded moment, who will rid me of this turbulent priest, according to Shakespeare? We think it's unlikely he ever said that. Well, he would have said it in Latin or French anyway, wouldn't he? The language of court. Four knights overheard him and rode to Canterbury to brutally murder him. The names of Reginald Fitzers, Hugh de Morville, Richard Le Breton and William de Tracy. And they rained down blows upon him that uh, tore Christ's blessed body limb from limb. The first blow struck him through the shoulder blade, cutting down through the rib cage and landing in the hip bone. So mighty witnesses said, and there were 80 of them, that the blade got stuck in the hip bone and they had to twist, cracking the hip bone to get the blade out. As if you were murdering something in front of your mates, you've got to get it right. You know, it's embarrassing. You go, useless. Uh, then uh, the next blow came from the nape of the neck down the spinal column, the coccyx, all the way through, slicing through. An English broadsword. The broadsword. Thomas Beckett. Thomas Beckett, yeah. Mm. Local boy. Uh, shaving accident. So, Knight of Gillette. <laughs> the best a king could get. Now, when, when they got down the coccyx, uh, then they sliced from where the elbow would have been because the arm's gone, slicing through in a diagonal motion in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. What we call at that time a jacket potato execution. With cream cheese ready to go. Now, the final blow was the nape of the neck to the front of the cranium, slicing through the brain itself. At this point, Beckett was kneeling on the ground, and the tip of the sword that sliced that fatal blow broke on the altar floor. Until CSI Canterbury and uh, Canterbury Cleaning Crew went in there, there was always a trickle of blood in the floor they could never get it out. But Tanner Country Cleaning was in there one night and said, oh, there's some sewer out there. Scrape that out, it's lovely clean now, Archbishop. Oh, what have you done? <laughs> oh, well, that's all clean, that's what it's fine. The Order of the Cross Swords is still a point of pilgrimage, even if you're not Catholic, even if you don't believe in that sort of thing. Maybe you're in the civil service for many years, and they'd be kicked <laughs> out of you. But it is a really, really spiritual place to go. The new altar has been rebuilt with a depressing-looking sculpture, which marks where, uh, well, where Pope John Paul II and the Archbishop knelt at the same time. The first time the head of the Catholic Church and the head of the Church of England have ever sat together or knelt anywhere in the same place. And it was a pretty historic moment. And when his helicopter came through, the whole crowd went, wow, that's a helicopter. Now, inside the cathedral, many people do claim to see the ghost of Thomas Beckett and just about every other archbishop who died accidentally of sword injuries. Because <laughs> most of them, I mean, it's almost a guaranteed death. If you, if you become an archbishop, you'll be dead. It's a job for death. Mm. You, you can't retire. You can now, but in those days, yeah. it's a job until death. So, I mean, you were lucky with the civil service. You meant they signed you up for the church service. I mean, great. <laughs> <laughs> Retirement, don't be ridiculous. There's only one way out of here, feet first. Now, 
most recently a group of Canadians claimed to see the ghost of Thomas Beckett in the cloister, which is odd because the cloister wasn't built until 160 years after <laughs> Beckett's death. But still, you know, these Canadians are happy. They'd been to the uh, pub over there, had a few pints. They claimed that Beckett wasn't a six foot six, as flaming red hair and ginger beard. It was more about three foot two, uh, with a sort of monk's hood, and his right hand was seen swinging in front of him. He was heard, according to them all, to be saying the words, Esmeralda, Esmeralda. <laughs> it's quite possible they saw the ghost of Quasimodo on holiday. It's got to go somewhere, isn't it? Especially a fictional character on holiday. It's not bad, is it? Victor Hugo. So let's move on from here towards, not to the ballroom, but uh, towards our final stop to the Sun Hotel. You can see up here, made famous as the Little Inn by Chaz Dickens, the famous Chaz and Dave Dickens pop duo of the 1830s. <laughs> Local people can't spell big words like Charles, so we should Chaz. And uh, the Sun Hotel was built in 1503, put there to help Americans understand the existence before they did. And uh, they look at it and say, that's not possible. We weren't created until soon before now. Anyway, while Charles Dickens was staying in this room here, he stayed in this room here for 12 years while writing something called David Copperfield. Now, imagine you're running a B&B, and some odd bearded bloke turns up and says, I've come to check in. Certainly, sir. What's the name? Dickens. Right, Mr. Dickens. And how long are you staying for? A couple of weeks? Uh, 12 years. 12 years? You can find yourself somewhere else to live. Well, of course, he, he, he spent most of his life renting accommodation. It wasn't until his, near the end of his life he bought a place called Gads Hill near Rochester, which is where he uh, ended up uh, picking out. And he founded something in London called the Ghost Club of London. It still exists. It's in Marlborough, and it meets every Friday around this time of night. They meet and they discuss ghosts. <laughs> but it's more the supernatural end of ghosts. It's a really pretty spooky bunch. The uh, most famous, uh, well, apart from Dickens, most famous alumni was a man called... Uh, uh, I was say Harry Cook, but I think it's uh, Harry... Harry Webb, but it can't be him because he's, he's un- dead. Well. No, Harry oh, Webb's no, not Harry Webb, that's Chris Bruce. Harry Bryce's name was. Well, oh, very suspicious, suspicious in that apartment. No. Uh, the new spook without fire, bless him. Well, they said he was going to be a bachelor boy, so I'm sure it's something else. Now, while he was staying in this room here, every night he claimed to be haunted by the ghost of a little girl known locally as Nell the Cook. She was a cook for the Cathedral of Canterbury between. Uh, uh, 1499 and 1523. She introduced the English diet, something called sausage. You heard of sausage, have you? Yeah, yeah. I say. Well, when the monks first tried sausage, they didn't like the taste or look of it. But after a couple of weeks, they got a taste for it, and they wouldn't give it up. Uh, some, some wouldn't go a day without sausage. Can you imagine that? Even at public school, they still play a strange game called Ouille Saucisson. Now, um, while he was staying here, he said that this girl would come every night stroke the side of his cheek in a friendly way and tuck him into bed in a special way. Most men are okay with that, living or dead, what we can get, what we can get. <laughs> However, they do, they're all into that sort of stuff, friendly lunch. However, in this case, his wife was not into being stroked. It wasn't illegal, that sort of stuff, but she wasn't into it. And, uh, but she said to her husband, never follow that girl into the building next door, because every night she would say, come hither, for I have something to show thee. Well, Dickens was, you know, true to his word, he kept his word to his wife, and after 12 years he didn't, but on the 12th year she moved to Broadstairs to take lodgings at a place called Fort House, now called Bleak House, to confuse Americans who thought it was an Hertfordshire, and uh, she, uh, she said, now, when I'm gone, don't 
whatever you do, follow that girl. Well, can imagine Dickens rubbing his little hands. Oh, finally she's gone. Well, he waited for one week and then he followed the ghost of the girl in the building next door. She went through, he claimed through an old doorway. Well, for most of after his death, people said, well, that's rubbish. In 1992, they were, they were rebuilding this place and they found the original doorway, which Dickens mentioned in his journals. It really was a doorway, so it was a ghostly doorway. It's quite possible how he could possibly have known this because he wasn't psychic or anything. Uh, he went through the doorway of the building next door. In his day, there's another house of ill repute. Part of the reason that Mrs. Dickens said, don't you dare go to the building next door. But in this room, he saw great expectations. There was Nicholas Nickleby. There was Oliver Twist. I mean, uh, his original stories. And I stopped leaving his mother, of course. He followed her to the cellar, this girl, down the cellar steps to the cellar below here where she knelt at his feet. When that happens, all men get very religious. Dickens. Dickens was no exception. He said, oh, bless you, child. Bless you, child. And on the third blessing, the child vaporised his feet. He woke alone in his room in a cold sweat. Couldn't explain what he'd seen. Couldn't write for a week. Put it right as crown. <laughs> that seems... The Dickens wasn't alone in seeing this thing, because since then everybody who's ever stayed in that room sees the same ghost. She's dressed in old-fashioned clothes now, but of course for contemporary for many years she was just a just an ethereal form. It seems that uh, young Nell the cook was a real person. When she was working at the cathedral, her accommodation was uh, in these rooms here, or not exactly these rooms, this is probably where her accommodation was. In the rooms above were the Archbishop's guest accommodation, and they still are Archbishop's guest accommodations. So when the Archbishop has friends over, they, they tend to stay here. You can access the, uh, the, the close from the other side. Uh, well, well, young Nell the Cook was around. She was in love with the Archbishop, according to her own journal. She was, you know, she was an educated girl. She grew up in uh, Paris. and uh, That's where she learned to cook and came to England as an apprentice. And uh, she wrote in her journals that she was in love with the Archbishop, probably not the best thing in those days, because they were a bit celibate. And they could be in love with God, but nobody else. Now, when, uh, when she was uh, here, one day a young lady arrived from France, claimed to be the Archbishop's niece. Nobody was more surprised than the Archbishop, who was an orphan. But apparently he was overjoyed to find he had a niece. She was 18 years old and arrived as an orphan in August. <laughs> he used to look at a real special way across the dining room table most evenings. And one night he even kissed her good night away that uncle shouldn't kiss their nieces. But she was from France. They kiss differently over there, don't they? Yeah, they tell me do, not they? the one way to apply toothpaste without a toothbrush. <laughs> now, uh, oh, you're all clean there, darling, we're in bed. Now, he'd tuck her into bed in this little room up here for eight or nine hours, which, well, I suppose that's really tucking a girl in, isn't it? <laughs> he looked jolly tired the next morning, like tucking to a man in. And Nell was a bit suspicious of this, so the next night she, she peeked in through the keyhole when she heard some odd sounds from up there. I didn't tell exactly what she saw, but her, her jealous fears are truly realised. So she visited a friend the apothecary, Mr Boots, around the corner, who was doing three for two that week, on revenge. <laughs> revenge is said his best served cold, revenge is sweet. <laughs> the next morning, both Archbishop and his little niece were found lying stone dead in the same bed, the crust of a lay- game pie lying between them, two slices missing. The cause of death? According to the king's own physician, too much pie. Even now, too much pie's a killer. If you sneak down late at night for a pork pie, an alarm goes off all over England and says, pork pie, pork pie, pork pie, pork pie, but we are a Christian country. And, uh, according to David Cameron, the war- warmonger, oh, we've got another one here. Reverse back on a one-way street. OK, now we're going to go around here again. What's going on here? Can't get down to this ambulance. Okay, right. So uh, now she can get the fights over there. Clear all the bins. When the Archbishop's body was found, Nell Cook disappeared off the face of the earth. She was a missing person, like the Mary Celeste she was. She'd have been a ship that had found her immediately. But uh, rather this she was, and she was discovered buried in this building in 1997 when they were excavating the cellars to build a new tea room 
they found the remains of a little girl at the foot of the stairs, exactly where Dickens said she would be. They also found, say, all these uh, these links here, and they've knocked it all into one. This is now a bathroom for the uh, top room up there. The people who were there a couple of weeks ago didn't sleep very well at all. They complained to the uh, the landlord of the hotel. Why was there a chambermaid three times during the night? She kept coming into the bloody bed down. With one service, the other's just weird and odd. Three times is just creepy. So uh, look out those girls there. Sorry? It's quite possible. Although the, the, the story was actually written up by a man called Richard H. Barham, uh, who's uh, the, the, uh, the vicar of a place called Barham in Kent, uh, known as the Inglesby Legend was his pen name. Inglesby Legend, you might have heard of Inglesby? Thomas Inglesby. Not a very big literary genius, but he, he was uh, an Oxford Don. Very boring chap, but he wrote the story down in a very flowery prose. And supposedly, she used Belladonna rather than uh, Revenge. Belladonna was actually much more efficient. Hemlock's a bit dangerous, a bit, bit pricey, but Belladonna, you only need one, one leaf of Belladonna and you'll kill somebody. Even now, it's one of the most strongest poison. Dig- mm. Digitoxin. I'm sure you remember this. The Young Poisoner's Handbook. He wrote The Young Poisoner's Handbook and he's all clearly. Nonetheless, since then, her ghost has been seen and felt in this area. I often used to think that was her ghost up there. I saw that the other night. Yeah, yeah, so, so. <laughs> What's going on there? It's coming out of close, is it? We'll get run over by the taxi. <laughs> taxi. Now, we're standing there, so just a little bit. We've been by a local person. So let's come and join hands. Come and join hands. Big fingers up. So we're going to do. Move around a bit. So basically, we're going to try and hold a séance to Nell Cook. She was only buried over there. She was reburied in uh, 1992 in Dark Entry, in the Cathedral precincts, in unconsecrated ground. So we don't know how she died. When they found her body, there were scratch marks on the underside of the slab, which is trying to scratch her way out. Fingers born to the first knuckle bones. Not nice for the archaeologists who found her. Time team came down for it. Remember Tony Robinson? Really? Yeah, he came down there. Is she still alive? Yeah. Tony Robinson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Things, yeah. I get worried yeah. that one of these, they keep yeah. dying on my, oh, know, my yeah. childhood, yeah. you know, heroes. <laughs> or they get imprisoned. Anyway, and that's, <laughs> that's down our heads and to say a prayer. We won't get interrupted by locals, so they see a group of people in a circle holding prayers. That's creepy Christians, still well clear. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll say a prayer. Dearly beloved, say that with me, Paul. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here. We are gathered here today in the sight of God, the sight of God and this congregation. This congregation. Just you and me, there, sir. <laughs> to call the spirit, to call the spirit of Nell the Cook. And we are grateful. We are grateful for she gave us. For she gave us the sausage. The sausage. We are truly grateful. We are truly grateful for the sausage. For the sausage. So we ask. <laughs> That she rests in peace. That she rests in peace. And not in pieces. And not in pieces. We ask this. We ask this. In the name of the Father. In the name of the Father. And of the Son. And of the Son. And of the Holy Goat. And of the Holy Goat. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. 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 Oh, it's worth a try. Come on, we have a try. <laughs> <laughs> the worst ending you've ever had. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is the end of our little tour tonight. We've seen some pretty odd things, including police and ambulances and everything riding through the city. It's been jolly exciting, isn't it? And we've learned that uh, Belladonna is not good for you. So if you offer you a pie with Belladonna sprinkled on top, you say, no, I think I might pass. Never touch the face of a corpse. Never lick the side of a corpse. If you have broken legs, don't try to run away. Never do ladies first. Never do ladies first. It's amazing how much of English history we've forgotten yeah. about. Yeah. And I hope you've learned a bit more about yeah. English history. And also look, look above your heads and also look out for yeah. the face of Jack in the Green and all those yeah. hidden places, especially in Essex.
<laughs> Thaxted, have you heard of Thaxted? Yeah, yeah, yeah. near Braintree, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's where yeah. there's holes through the planets. You know that? Yeah. Just have holes through the planets, yeah. the cottage yeah. on the grid. Also used in that First World War drama recently about conscientious objectors, so the people of the in between us. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> a bit further down, you've got a place called Borley. Have you heard of Borley Rectory? I was going to ask you about it. We've been there, the most haunted place yeah. in Britain, in the UK. Well, Harry Price was the yeah. one who first investigated in 1932, yeah. and the whole place was destroyed by fire soon after he investigated. Yeah, it was a nunnery, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, they, yeah. They reckon it's because it was devil worship. Mm-hmm. It was actually burnt down by some local person who didn't want them to discover the devil worship mm-hmm. going on there. That is yeah. the one place I've been where I've actually felt that shiver. Yeah. Well, you know, you've been there. Yeah, yeah. And most women yeah. feel this shiver as well. I didn't have to sleep there, actually. Yeah, you just <laughs> sleep by the side of the church. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, but ladies do have this, sense, this sixth sense, which men don't understand when they go to us, not a haunted body, but even a house hunting, they go, oh, I can't stay here. And you say, oh, the schools are perfect. You know, it's all great accommodations. Who's around the corner? I can't stay here. He said, Well, can you explain yourself? No. Women's intuition. Well, no. What's women's intuition? We don't know what that means, do we? So the words that where a woman says, Okay. You think, oh, great. No, it's okay at all. Right, I'm going to get you for that. So the city of Canterbury is coming alive. I'm sorry about the uh, smell of uh, yeah, Christian, uh, Christian tingling. Uh, but do stick to the doorways and uh, you'll be fine. Enjoy the city. God bless you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And if you've enjoyed it, do tell your friends. If you haven't enjoyed it, don't tell everyone. I've got one or two friends, so I'll tell them all. Bless you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, Jenny, God bless you. Thank you. So, Jenny. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.we Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Once again, I'd like to thank John Hipsley for chatting with us and allowing us to tag along on the Canterbury Ghost Tour, and also for sending me a signed copy of his book, Haunted Canterbury. Links to the tour, John's book, and other items mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed our Halloween special, and I look forward to speaking with you all again real soon well that about wraps it up for this episode of tgp extra be sure to visit thegarbagepod.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode just look for the relevant tab on the menu let us know what you think of the show send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com because your input is our output or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include twitter and facebook if you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts you can do so via itunes the rss feed and also stitcher and tune in on demand radio don't forget to rate and review us you can find links on all our podcast pages if you like what we're doing here then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages and don't forget to spread the word about us The Garbage Pod is a Spam Head production.